All right, well, let's open with a word of prayer and then we'll, we'll get into it. Gracious Father, we thank you for this day that we could be together, that we could study your word. Your word is a gift to us. Your word is, is so precious. It provides us with knowledge of our Savior, Jesus Christ. It provides us with, with everything we need to come to know him and put our faith in him. And it also prepares us to, to live lives of godliness, lives that are in, in obedience to, to you and that are glorifying to you. The book of Revelation is no different. It is certainly relevant for us and it has a message to speak to us. I pray that today as we, as we work our way through your word, as we work through these, these second, the second and third chapters of Revelation, the messages to the churches that you would speak to us, that we would walk away clear about what you intended us to, to take away, what you intended us to understand, and that we would respond rightly to the message that you have inspired by your Spirit. I ask that your Spirit would help us to understand the Scriptures. Would, would you help me as I, as I try to explain some of these things and as we dialogue together, would your, your Spirit pervade all things? In the name of our Savior, we pray. Amen. Um, real quick before we get started, I wanted to pass around um, a list for you to write name and email. Um, it would just be helpful to me. That way I can, I'll, I can email out um, the, the handouts and whatnot after. And that, that way, if you want a digital copy, copy, you can have one of those as well. Um, you don't have to worry about saving um, saving those or trying to protect them. I know that they're so precious. You know, you, you don't want to ever lose them, spend so much time on them. Um, and yeah, so uh, Cindy, you can pass that pin around with it too, just so everyone has something to write with. Um, other than that, if you uh, maybe weren't here last week and you wanted one of the handouts, um, I have extra of those. Or if you weren't here two weeks prior and you didn't get one of the handouts, come see me. I have, have plenty. Um, but other than that, we can go ahead and get started. Today we're going to be diving into chapters 2 and 3 of Revelation. Uh, it's a really exciting, um, exciting couple of chapters. There's a lot going on. There's a lot of um, important things to note as we, as we begin our journey through the rest of the book. And so we'll spend some time talking about that. Um, one of the things that I asked you last week was to spend some time thinking through the main idea of the book of Revelation. Um, you were supposed to, I don't know if you did, read the whole book uh, two weeks ago and, and try and get the big picture. And so I wanted to, to see if anyone had, had tried to take a stab at maybe coming up with a sentence or two summarizing what is John trying to say in the book, what is the the message? What is he trying to get across to his readers? Did anyone anyone have a, have a sentence that they came up with? Yeah, Frank. Well, I mean, I, I kind of did one point one and one point two on here, which yeah. is what you have. So if I read both of those, uh, I said uh, this book reveals the last days of this earth, showing that God's directing all things to a final time of judgment and renewal. The purpose is to assure believers of the victory of Christ that will occur while also preparing them to endure the difficulties that are ahead. Yeah, good. A lot of a lot of important points in there. Anyone else want to want to add or or maybe read what they came up with? 
Yeah, that's true. That is true. Uh, I thought that I would go ahead and take a stab at it. So here's what I came up with. It's a main idea statement for the book. The triune God will be glorified through both salvation and judgment, one day returning to claim ultimate victory over his enemies. Therefore, believers can persevere in the midst of suffering and temptation. There's several pieces to that, and I won't walk through all of them. Hopefully, as we continue week by week, we'll unpack some of these things. But um, the goal is that each piece is is going to be corresponding to one of the main themes, uh, one of the main um, one of the main focuses of of the book. And so, the triune God. I said the triune God because the, the book is focused on the, the, the Trinity, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. He will be glorified. There's continual references to God um, seeking uh, glory and, and then being glorified as he rightly should be. And he's glorified through saving a people for himself and through his just judgment. One day he will return to claim ultimate victory over his enemies. As you as said, read the end of the book, you know who wins. And then in light of all this, believers can persevere in the midst of suffering and temptation. And so, um, again, we'll unpack a lot of those as we, as we go through, uh, through this, this series together. Um, I thought I'd also read what a couple um, of different commentators said about the main idea. Here's G.K. Beale. I've mentioned him several times. He said, the main idea of the entire book may be roughly formulated as follows. The sovereignty of God and Christ in redeeming and judging brings them glory, which is intended to motivate saints to worship God and reflect his glorious attributes through obedience to his word. The exhortation in Revelation 14.7 comes close to summarizing the point of the book. Fear God and give him glory because the hour of his judgment has come and worship the one who has created all things. That's, uh, that's what one, one guy, Greg Beale, says. Here's what uh, another, another scholar, Matt Emerson, he wrote that, that little book that I really recommended, I said was, uh, was really helpful, really short read. He says, the theological center of Revelation is this. Because Jesus has already won the war on our behalf, and because he is coming again, Christians can stand firm even in the midst of persecution and temptation. Put it another way, he says, remain faithful to God in Christ, by the power of his Holy Spirit, until he returns in glorious victory over all his enemies. Really concisely, remain faithful until God returns. That is what he says is the main point of the book, and I think that's for, for the five words, that is it's really, really good. Yeah. Uh, again, I, I've said that the main themes, then, are going to contrib- contribute to the, the main idea. Obviously, John is going to be working some some focuses, some emphases throughout the book, and then all those put together is kind of going to equal the, the main theme. Um, what, off the top of your head, name some themes that are really prominent in the book. Perseverance. Perseverance. Judgment. Judgment. Anything else? Perseverance, judgment? Repentance, yeah. I don't know how to say about that, the new heavens and the new yeah, yeah, the new creation, future restoration. You could say God, Christ, the Holy Spirit. Um, here's a survey of a, a bunch of different people. 
Beale says, suffering and victory, the sovereignty of God, the new creation, the place of Christians in the world. Grant Osborne says, God, futility of Satan, Christ, the Holy Spirit, cosmic war, judgment, mission, perseverance, worship. Brian Tabb says, the triune God, worship and witness, judgment, salvation, and restoration, and the word of God. Scott Duvall says, God, worship, the people of God, Holy Spirit, our enemies, the mission, Jesus Christ, judgment, the new creation, and perseverance. And so, if you can see, there's a lot of similarities between those, those lists. And um, even just look, these are, these are four, four different guys. They all um, are, are noting these, these themes, and, um, and we mentioned several of them. And so these are, I mean, they're all, they, they really are all the same. They might just combine a few things together or, um, or phrase it a little differently, but these are, are going to be some of the, the primary themes, and all these then together are going to um, show us what John is focusing on. Now the question, and, and Frank answered this um, in, in, his, um, in his sentence, which was great. Uh, the question about the, the purpose of a book is going to be a little different than the main idea. The main idea is going to be what the, the author is communicating, and then the purpose is going to be why he's communicating. And so with everything that someone says, there's a reason that they say it. And so the, the biblical authors, it's no, no different. They're not just writing something without any purpose behind it. They're writing for a specific purpose. And so um, we, we should ask, what is John trying, to, uh, trying to, to tell us and why is he trying to tell us that? Uh, here's here's what, I, what I said was uh, a good purpose statement. John's purpose is to reassure suffering believers of God's sovereign control, future return, and ultimate victory, to warn them against compromise, and to exhort them towards faithful, worshipful, and expectant living. So it's kind of threefold, to reassure, to warn, and to exhort. Um, I think are, are, are three of the, the main purposes. It, again, it's not, it's, not that it's, um, it's not that it's just to tell us what's going to happen. Or it's not that the only purpose is to, uh, is to warn. There's a lot of overlap between reassuring, warning, and exhorting. And so uh, I think that those, those three will, will go hand in hand. Here's um, uh, another, another quote from, from Beale. John's purpose in writing is to encourage those not compromising with idolatry to continue in that stance and to jolt those who are compromising out of their spiritual anesthesia so that they will perceive the spiritual danger they are in and repent and become witnesses to the risen Christ as Lord. Therefore, the focus of the book is exhortation to the church community to witness to Christ in the midst of a compromising, idolatrous world. Um, there's a few more, I won't, won't read all of them, but uh, Emerson says there's four aspects, remind, exhort, show, and encourage. These are, are going to be similar when we talked in the first week about why is apocalyptic literature written, uh, Revelation as an apocalyptic book. It's going to share a lot of these things. And so, again, the, the key here is it's, it's not just written to tell us about some future prophecy, end times code that we need to unravel. It is, ha, has purpose and it is for us now. It's relevant for us now and has bearing on the present. Um, it's supposed to be encouraging. It's supposed to cause you to, to worship. 
supposed to cause you to, to change and to do something. And so uh, these are all, all things that are, are going to be helpful as we, we focus throughout the book on how, uh, how the author does this. Yeah? Would you say, I mean, when you look at Revelation, it's not really necessary to figure out the details, but more to capture these themes? Um, I, I would say so. Yeah, and that's where I think, you know, I, I've, I've heard people, and I think it's so sad, they say, I'm not ready to read the book of Revelation yet, or I, you know, I just, I'm going to avoid it because I can't completely understand it. And obviously, we can't completely understand any book of Scripture, no matter how simple or easy it might be. Uh, God's Word is, is infinitely deep in its, in its richness and in the truth. Uh, that, it, that it shares with us, and so we will spend the rest of our lives uh, mining the riches of God's Word. And so, uh, of course, we can't expect to completely understand it. Um, but I, I do believe that God giving us His Spirit, and then also, uh, if, we, if we read uh, responsibly, we are able to understand the, the primary thrust of of the entire scripture and of individual books and passages. And so, um, so yeah, with the book of Revelation, I, I've also heard people say, oh, yeah, I, I've got it all figured out. And um, that's kind of on the other side where it's like, well, <laughs> no, no, you don't. Um, and so, so, yeah, I think that, that we can understand the book. We can understand the message that John is, is trying to communicate without um, necessarily understanding every single detail. And it's not that throughout... Uh, these weeks, we're, we're not going to talk about any of the details. We will. But what I want you to walk away with more than, than just, oh, having all these details you know, figured out and, and knowing your position on all these things is to, to walk away capturing the, the thrust of the book and what John is, is communicating and why he's communicating and how you're to respond. And so, um, so yeah, that's, it's, it's good. And that's, um, I, I think it will be helpful for us, especially, too, with things like the imagery. It's not always so much about the exact precise image that we need to then decipher and figure out well, what is it referring to. It's about what is that, what is that image communicating and, and why is it being used. And so we ask those questions first before then we can look for, okay, how might that be um, fulfilled in some, some modern reference it, or is it going to? Um, so yeah, good, good question. Um, last, last long quote. I know I'm sharing a lot of long quotes. Um, from, from Brian Tapp, he says about the purpose of Revelation, Revelation's symbolic visions challenge readers to resist worldly compromise, spiritual complacency, and false teaching. They also encourage embattled believers to persevere in faithful witness and hope in the present and future reign of God and the Lamb. The visions offer a divine perspective on what is true, valuable, and lasting, they expose the true nature of the world's ungodly political, I should say, cultural, economic, and religious system destined for destruction, and they reorient believers' worldviews and values around God's eternal kingdom. So that's, in a nutshell, all those, I, I just shared several quotes, but those, those are going to be the, the reasons why John is writing what he's writing. Um, and so it's important that we keep all of this in mind as we read why he's, he's writing is ultimately for, uh, for challenging us and encouraging us, uh, for warning us. And so, so yeah, those are, those are all important to keep in mind. Um, now we can, can start moving into the passage. Before I go there, any, any questions on, on anything so far, any, anything that you might have been wondering about? 
All right. Well, let's uh, let's look at let's begin looking at this uh, this passage for today, Revelation chapters two and three. Just to set it um, in context a bit, we've moved now through the first chapter and wrapped up John's prologue and greeting into the book, as well as his vision of the exalted Christ. Jesus has commissioned John to write down this revelation and then to to send it as a letter to seven churches. And so last week we saw that the introduction to Revelation and really the entire book is structured as one big letter. It's one big epistle. And so um, it has all the standard features of a normal letter in the New Testament. It has an introduction and greeting, then uh, a prayer of blessing or or thanksgiving, and then it has... um, then it will go in into the body of the letter, which we are about to enter into. And then even at the end, you have um, a travel log, which is either the, the author saying, I'm going to come to you soon, prepare a room for me, or I'm sending this person to you. At the end of Revelation, Jesus says, I'm coming soon. And so there you have a travel, travel log. And then uh, you have a conclusion and wrap up it and uh, another, another blessing. And so, so the whole thing is, is structured as one big letter. Um, now that we're moving into these second and third chapters, John is, is commissioned to, to write these things to seven churches, and they're often called the seven letters to the churches. Um, I would say, I think it, you know, it's not that that's wrong, but it might be best to, to avoid calling them letters because to, to remind ourselves that the whole book is one letter. It's not just that these were then individual letters that were taken out of the book as a whole and shipped off and then you know, chapter one and then picking up in four was the book. No, this, was a, this is a part of the larger structure of the book, which is a giant letter that was sent to the churches. Um, it's also significant um, to point out again, as I did last week, the number seven, which, is, uh, stand, which stands in the Bible for completion or fullness. I think the, the, the number seven here, it, it's best for us to see the addresses to the seven churches as directed to the fullness of the church or the entire church, the universal church. It, it speaks to the church of all time, of all peoples. I think that's captured, I, I believe, right? In each section, he says something similar where it says, he was here, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Mm-hmm. He calls to the churches. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, you stole one of my points. Uh, no, but no, exactly. And that's great that you, you noted that. And so it, you have this, this address to an individual church, and then it says, hear what the Spirit says to the church is. Um, and so it's all addressed to, to all of the churches. Well, pretty much all of these problems are going on throughout the church all the time. Yeah. I mean, yeah. yeah. Yes, that's very true. Uh, another interesting thing for us to note is, is these first three chapters they really lay the thematic foundation for the rest of the, the book. And um, here's, here's another quote from, from Emerson. He says, much like we see in Paul's letters, John's introductory material is expanded in the body of the book and repeated in the conclusion. And like the general letters that immediately precede Revelation in the New Testament, John continually emphasizes testing, perseverance, rejecting false teachers, and overcoming. Um, Matt Emerson, he, I really, really appreciate him as a, as a scholar. He um, wrote uh, one, of his, one of his first books was on approaching the, the New Testament um, and reading it in the order that it came to, to be in our Bibles. 
and is there a significance to that order? And, and he argues, yes, I think there is. And I think there's, there's themes and there's a structure to reading it in that way. And so one of the things that he points out then with Revelation is that it serves as the climax to the entire canon, the entire um, biblical um, narrative and the entire um, entirety of all, all the books of the Bible. And he, he says that it serves as a climax, not only just thematically, or in, in, the terms of, in terms of the, the story ending with the, the new creation, but also in the way that it closes out some of the themes that we've seen in the New Testament. Um, again, there's been 21 epistles and then 21 letters, and then you have Revelation, which is one big letter to seven churches, to the universal church, and so it stands as the, the final message to, to God's churches. Uh, and then it also has many of the same themes that we find in what are called the general letters, the general epistles, pretty much just every letter that's not written by Paul in the New Testament. So it has a lot of those same themes and connections, which is really interesting to point out. And so anyway, so um, there's a lot of things that we'll see emphasized in these first few chapters and then also in the last couple of chapters that become foundational for the rest of the book. And uh, I, I have one professor who always says, you know, if, you, uh, if you're running late on, on, on homework assignments and you need to read something really quick, just read the, read the beginning, the introduction of the chapter, and read the ending, and you'll probably be okay. Uh, and it's, it's a good, you know, you should read it all, but with, with a book like Revelation, with a lot of books, if you read the beginning and the, and the ending, it'll give you a good idea of what's going to go on in the entirety of it. And so uh, that could be something good as you study your Bible, read the first chapter or two, read the last couple chapters, and then read the whole thing and see if you, you see some major themes or connections that are uh, that go on throughout. Um, all right, before then I start talking more, I wanted to, to ask you guys, hopefully you all did the homework, uh, hopefully you read the passage beforehand and, and thought through some of the questions on the handout. Um, first, did anyone notice a pattern or formula that showed up in each of the addresses? Yes. Um, started with a greeting to the angel of the church. Mm -hmm. And then you would say something like, I know your situation, and you would either hit the good or the bad about the church first, or swap the two. Mm -hmm. And then you have some sort of exhortation to them, you need to fix this, fix that. And then um, kind of would end it with, if they heed the exhortation, then this would be the spiritual result for them or the blessing. Yeah, yeah, exactly. That is, that's, that's great. Um, in the first week, I talked about the three different literary categories that we have in, in the Bible. We have different types of literature, and that's kind of the big level. Then we have different genres, literature, and then on the smallest level, we have different forms that we find. And this would be an example of a form, something that happens on the smaller level, a pattern that we are going to see, and it, it tends to follow the same pattern. Interestingly, though, um, when you are encountering a, a form or something, um, if there's then a break in the pattern, it's usually significant. Um, if there's a general way that something tends to go and then there's a break, it, it's probably, probably important to note for uh, just, just an example. Um, I've mentioned the structure of letters in the New Testament. So you start out with, uh, with a greeting, you name the sender, then the recipients, and then Grace and peace to you from our Lord Jesus Christ. 
goes on, and then uh, there's, there's a prayer of, of thanksgiving or a blessing. Paul follows that in, in almost all of his letters. Uh, in the letter of Galatians, he starts off with the, the, the greeting and the sender and the recipients, and then he goes straight into the body of the letter. He skips the prayer. Does anyone know why that might be? He's pretty ticked off at him. Yeah, he's ticked off at him because they've, they've lost the gospel. They, he, he says that they, they are, are, are spreading a false gospel and, and has some very, very, very strong words for him. And so it's significant. It shows his, um, part of his purpose for writing. It shows his tone um, that he's, he's, you know, he's, not, he's not happy with them. And so uh, that's an example of how a break can, can kind of signify something that, that is important. And so um, we'll talk about that a little, a little later with uh, this pattern and, and some different breaks that we have. Um, next, did anyone notice any significant allusions to the Old Testament? And then what were they? Where did they come from? Why would they have been used? I mean, I, I don't know, I know exactly where, but just when they talk about first and last, beginning and end. Mm-hmm. And yep. They call it from the language of Isaiah. Yep, Isaiah 41, 44, 48. Well, when he talks about uh, the one who conquers on grant, uh, I will grant to eat the tr- from the tier- tree of life, which is in uh, paradise of God, so it refers to back to Genesis. Yeah, Genesis 2 and 3, also Ezekiel 28, uh, paradise of God is mentioned. Anything else? Hidden manna. Yep, manna in the wilderness. I'm not quite sure, but the you know, flaming eyes and bronze. Uh, yep, Daniel 10 6. Pretty much, pretty much everything in here is, <laughs> is, is an illusion. And uh, I realized last week I kind of blitzed through. A bunch of a bunch of these, and I, you know, I know a couple of people were trying to write them down and wanted to go through them. So I thought I'll print them out and give them to you, give them to you. So that's one of the sheets with the illusions on there. There's all the illusions that I, um, I didn't find those all myself. So I'm not, I'm not a genius. Uh, but um, those are, I think, illusions, and some of them will be more clear than others. Some of them might just be drawing on a word or two that I, I think it, it's likely that um, is being referenced. Um, We'll talk through some more of those, but again, pretty much everything is, is an illusion. Even, um, even the, let's see, um, the, the lampstands, Zechariah, Zechariah 4, um, the faithful well, and true witness, the beginning of God's... Yeah, yep, Psalm 2 yeah. um, mentions uh, Balaam and Jezebel. Um, there's, there's so many different things. So we'll talk about some of those. Would we even say that John is using the illusion? Because it seems like Jesus is just giving this to him. He's just writing it down verbatim. Or do you think that John heard something and then he's now like reformulating what he heard? Yeah, um, it's a good question. Um, so it's really easy for us when... Uh, when we're reading something that is describing something that happened and something that we believe really happened, uh, to then try and interpret what happened rather than what is written. 
And so, um, so I think that, for, for example, here, I, I absolutely believe all this happened, and, and but now, but we don't. Ha we're not. We're not right there at the event watching. We're reading. We're reading it. And so John, ultimately, whether he's writing it ver verbatim or if he's doing things literarily to uh, to communicate his message, then we're in interpreting the the, the book. Um, so. So, so, he could, he, so he could it's, it's verbatim Jesus, or he could be like, okay, I had this conversation, and now under the guidance of the Holy Spirit, I'm going to recount what yeah. I remember of this conversation, and I'm going to put it this way. Yeah, and, and I mean, I don't know if John was taking notes the whole time. He might have had to have been writing pretty fast. That was the case. No, yeah, um, or, but, but yeah, and so it's, um, I, I think that he, he's absolutely communicating what Jesus, what Jesus, Jesus communicated to him. He's uh, communicating that truthfully and accurately. But, um, but yeah, he's, John is the one writing it down. And so John's the author. Jesus in the, the book and in the story is the one who spoke it. And so it's kind of both. They're both using it. Yeah. 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 My guess, in experience with the Holy Spirit that I've had myself and people, other people that I've talked to, John did what he said and its importance and its way he understood just exactly what was being communicated to him and its importance, you know, mm -hmm. uh, and given the given ability to write it down verbatim. Yeah. Or, you know. Yeah. Yeah. So, yeah, I'd probably say it's kind of both. <laughs> to, to, to cheat a little bit there. Um, what, about, what about the different titles for, for Jesus? This is one of my favorite parts of, of these passages. What did you think of all the different titles that Jesus was given, the way that Jesus was, was described? Well, I don't know if it's 100% for each church, but a lot of times the way they, the description for Jesus pertained to the text that was to come. Yeah. Um, in terms of you know, I will use the sword of my mouth after just describing the sword that is yeah. introduction. Oh. And so it seems like you can tie those into whatever it is to follow. Yeah, I, that's great. I think it I think it always always does. Yeah, and there's yeah. a reason that they use that particular one. Yeah. Well the words like firstborn, alpha and omega and witness all kind of alluded to. He's always been there, he always will be here. Like he's present throughout history. Yeah, absolutely. Well, crown and throne and illusion mm. is the king. Yeah, yeah. There's really some, some glorious descriptions of Jesus uh, in these <clears throat> chapters. What about, what about themes that we're running throughout? Obviously, there's, there's different focuses in, in each of the different um, messages, but were there, was there any, anything that was emphasized over and over, repeated? Um, seem to be running throughout that you, you picked up on? I, I just thought that um, it was very evident that he is all-knowing. Yeah. And, um, and judgment was another theme that was constant and that um, there's rep repentance, but there's also reward. Yeah. Um, those were just some of the things that I put in 
Yeah, yeah, it's great. A lot of encouragement to mm -hmm. people who are getting it right. I mean, yeah. in every church, even the worst of them, except for maybe Laodicea, yeah. there's people that are getting it right. Yeah. And I think there is a Laodicea too, Uh, you use that phrase like synagogue, synagogue of Satan. Yeah, yep. Yeah, the, there's a few repeated phrases to the one who conquers, uh, let the one with an ear, he, uh, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches, uh, those types of things that are, are repeated and that are, are probably important to pick up on. Um, for time's sake, we can't walk through every single verse as much as I would, would like to. Um, so I thought it would be, be helpful to walk through verse by verse, the first church, and then talk uh, larger scale, broader level about the, the entire, uh, entire address to the churches, the message it's communicating. Um, so we'll do that. So here is verses uh, one through seven. Uh, would someone like to read that out loud? I'm not the only one just up here reading the whole time. Jeff, you cleared your throat. I think that means you're going to read. Okay. To the angel of the church in Ephesus write, the words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand, who walks among the seven golden lampstands, I know your works, your toil, and your patient endurance, and how you cannot bear with those who are evil, but have tested those who call themselves apostles and are not, and have found them to be false. I know you are enduring patiently, and bearing up for my name's sake, and you have not grown weary. But I have this against you, that you have abandoned the love you had at first. Remember therefore from which remember therefore from which you have fallen. Repent and do the works you did at first. If not, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place, unless you repent. Yet this you have. You hate the works of the Nicolaitans which I also hate. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, I will grant to eat of the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. Thank you. All right, so verse 1, we are introduced to the, uh, to the sender and the recipient. This is to the angel of the church in Ephesus. Um, I said this last week, Frank didn't agree, which is fine. Uh, I think that the, the angels are spiritual beings um, and they, they're functioning here as representatives of each individual church. So the reason I, I think this, uh, I mentioned one, all throughout the book of Revelation, 60 times the, the word angel is used. It's, it's always in reference to a, a spiritual being. Um, and in the Bible, and especially in apocalyptic literature, angels are often divine messengers this is what we are told, uh, this fits with what we are told in 1-2, in where it says, The revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show his servants the things that much, must soon take place, he made it known by sending his angel to his servant John. And so the angel is revealing these things to John. He's, he's the messenger. Um, another reason that, that the message would be sent through the church's angel is to remind the church of their primary spiritual existence and to assure them of their help in heaven. Um, next, it is, we learn that this is Christ's address. This is the words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand, who walks among the seven golden lampstands. 
It's interesting that it, it begins, uh, the, the words of him, um, it's, it's similar, and, and even in the way it's, it's phrased, some translations rendered a little bit differently to how the prophets, when they declare a message from the Lord, thus says the Lord, thus says the Lord Almighty, thus says Jesus, Jesus is authoritative, he is, is uh, declaring a prophetic message to be heeded. Um, he, he has the same authority as, as Yahweh. Indeed, he is Yahweh, the, the God of the Old Testament. Yeah, Jeff. You know, that whole thing about the angel is just so weird to me. Because it's like, it is, why, yeah. are you church, why are you writing a letter to people in the church, but you're addressing the angel? But when I think about the book as a whole, like, all throughout the rest of the book, the angels are doing this, and they're given this task. You know, the angels are given all these tasks, and they're doing all these things. So, in a sense... Although it's still weird to me, it seems part and parcel with mm -hmm. God has his big plan, and the angels have a huge part in, they're very active in, you know, carrying out his will and, and, and doing certain things. You know? Yeah, and there's this very um, dualistic, good versus evil, God versus Satan, angels versus demons, and so this is one of the ways in which the angels are involved in the good. The angels are, are the messengers of God, they worship God, um, they do his will, and then you have the demons who do not, who are followers of Satan. And so, so yeah, that's a, that's a good, good point there. Uh, I want you to note the description of, of Jesus here. He's the one who holds the seven stars in his right hand and who walks among the seven golden lampstands. These images are ones that we got back in the first chapter when John first had the vision of Jesus, right? Um, in the Bible, the right hand, it symbolizes power and authority. Sorry if you're left-handed, but, um, but right, the right hand is, is the, the power, the powerful hand. Um, Benjamin, uh, Benjamin in Hebrew, son of my right hand, is, is uh, son of his power. Uh, and so anyway, um, by holding the seven stars in his right hand, seven fullness, completion, stars are it's obviously they're in the heavens, they're in creation. Jesus is the one who holds in his hand. He is, he is powerful over creation and over the heavens, over the universe. And then the lampstands, John was kind enough to tell us the end of last chapter that they're referring to the churches. And so lampstands are churches. Jesus is the one who walks among them. This means that Jesus is intimately aware of all that is going on in the churches. He's present with them, not just the seven individual churches, but again, all churches everywhere. He walks among the seven churches. Yeah? You know, I have a question about the word star. Like, when I think of star, I think of, like, oh, there's, like, it's a shape. Mm -hmm. But is he holding, like, like, some little, like, Hebrew, like, Davidic stars in his hand? Um, or is it supposed to be he's holding, like, when he says stars, is he mean, like, all these lights in the sky? I think like the lights in the sky type of stars, um, which again is, is, that's a bit more impressive than just, you know, like seven little star drawings, you know, like, he, yeah, he, yeah, yeah. No, no, no problem. The stars are the seven angels of the church. So he's holding. Yeah, and, and the angels' obedience. The angels. And all, yeah, angels are referenced as, as stars and, and also the, yeah, so. He's, he's sovereign over the heavens and then the, the earth, everything between. Um, another thing that I think this, this represents is I was, was thinking about this. Jesus, the one who, who walks among the churches, 
In Genesis 1, uh, God walks among the garden. He walks among, uh, among Adam and Eve. And obviously with, um, with the fall, that, uh, that intimacy, the, the presence of God dwelling among them is, is broken and shattered. And then the whole story of the rest of the Bible, which culminates in, in Revelation, is getting back to Eden. And we'll, we'll, we'll end um, Revelation 21 and 22 in the paradise of God. The dwelling place of God, dwelling place of God is with, is with His people. Revelation 21, and so here I think this is is also pointing us towards the fact that the church, uh, which Jesus laid down His life for and, and purchased through His blood, Ephesians 5, uh, is going to be the the means through which this uh, this presence, this return to Eden is, is accomplished through the, through the church that, that Jesus, um, Jesus died for. And so the design of Eden for God to dwell among his people is now starting to be fulfilled in the church, which 1 Corinthians 7 and, and the book of Revelation tells us that the church is the temple of God, the dwelling place of the Holy Spirit, and Jesus walks among them. And eventually we will dwell with him forever. And so that's just a cool little nuance of the fact that he is the one who dwells, uh, who walks among the lampstands. Um, so not only is this significant for what it says about Jesus, but again, as Frank noted, which is, uh, which is great, the description that is, is given in the, in the introduction of, of Jesus is going to be relevant for each situation being addressed to the particular church. It serves really as the foundation for them for overcoming the particular issue that they have. And we'll talk about that a little bit more. Um, his message now to the church is going to begin with a note of approval. He commends the church for what they're doing well. He knows their works, uh, their toil, patient endurance. They cannot bear with those who are evil and have tested and discovered false prophets. They're enduring patiently and bearing Jesus' name and have not grown weary. So when it comes to doctrinal purity... The Ephesians were at the top of the list. They were, uh, they were on their A-game. They kept their doctrine pure. They um, weeded out false teachers. They were discerning. They refused to stand for teaching that was not true. In fact, they persisted in guarding this sound teaching and in continuing to endure um, whatever hate they might receive for that. But Jesus then condemns them. Why? They, because they have abandoned their first love. What this likely means is they had lost their passion and zeal for the message of the gospel. They were no longer gracious and compassionate to the outside world. They were so inward focused on, uh, on their own doctrine and theology, they began to neglect um, everything on the outside, everything that, that they were called to, uh, to be a witness to. And this is why the introduction of Christ being the one who walks among the lampstands is significant. The, the lampstands, as we learned in chapter 1, are the churches, um, alludes to, to Zechariah, but the significance of, you think of a lampstand, what's it do? Gives off light, right? And, and so the church is supposed to be one that provides light to the world. Um, because they're so inward focused, they're no, no longer concerned with, with functioning as lampstands, as providing witness, as... Um, as light to the outside world. And so um, in relation to their Lord, their, their focus needs to be on being a light, on being a witness to the world. And also because there's a little bit of self-righteousness going on there. Yeah. They, uh, 
-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. And um, again, with the the lampstands, God's people were to be a light, a witness to the ungodly in the Old Testament. That's that's Israel, Exodus 19.6. There to be a kingdom of priests. That was alluded to last week. Um, Zechariah 4, there to be a lampstand. Isaiah 49 and uh, 42 also, there to be a light to the nations. The, the church now is comprised of the true Israel. They continue this prophetic witness, but here they're in danger of, of forfeiting that because they are not doing um, what they are supposed to do. So they're neglecting this role. They're called to repent by Jesus. They need to remember how far they've fallen, how much they've changed for the worse. They're retur- to return to the love they had at first. Uh, if not, there will be judgment. Jesus says that he will return and remove their lampstand. He will essentially take away that church's role, responsibility, and privilege as one of his churches. It's also interesting to to note here, it mentions Jesus coming to to remove their lampstand. And I think it's obvious that um, the coming of Jesus mentioned here is definitely not his final return. And so there's a sense in which the Lord will will absolutely return in a final future sense, but he also is coming regularly to visit his church in the present age, both to encourage and to judge. Uh, Here we have him saying he will come and judge. Is that a question, Jeff? Yeah, just an observation. Yeah, it's really interesting. I didn't really put it together before, but this whole idea of, like, God is putting these lights in the world, and both the stars, they are lights, they're heavenly lights, and the lampstands are like these people, like kind of lights, and the world's a dark place, and God is providing all these lights in this, in this, in this dark place. It reminds me of like, uh, I don't know why it reminds me of like, sometimes they refer to the morning star rising again. And, mm-hmm. and you know, I don't know, there's all these lights yeah. in the dark places. And, it, uh, and a little bit, he says that uh, to the one who conquers, he will give the morning star. Oh. Yeah. Um, so he calls them, calls them to repent or else he will come remove this lampstand, which is um, certainly a severe, severe warning there. Verse 7 then is going to wrap up, um, begin to wrap up this address. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Frank noted for me that the, the emphasis on what the Spirit says to the churches, uh, significant, churches plural, this is God's message to uh, the seven churches, all the churches, the, the universal church. And so uh, that's important, again, for us to realize that this is a message, message for us. Um, the phrase, he who has an ear, let him hear. Did that sound familiar to anyone? Jesus said it about a million times. He did. He said it all the time. Uh, usually after one of his parables, he, he would say that. Um, wasn't actually unique to Jesus. He was taking it from the Old Testament prophets, Isaiah 6, he would quote from uh, when he said this occasionally, but also in, um, in Jeremiah and Ezekiel, they said similar things. And so when they used this phrase, it essentially had the effect of gaining the attention of true believers, shocking some unbelievers or backsliders into repenting, and then hardening the hearts of the rest whose lack of spiritual wisdom, spiritual sight, spiritual hearing prevented them from seeing the significance of the actions or the parables. And this is how Jesus uses this phrase. He um, 
a great example is after the, the parable of the, um, the, the sower, the, the four different types of soil. He then, then says this, and, and so there will be some who, who seem to get it, but don't. There will be some who, um, who are just too stubborn to get it. There will be some who, um, who are, are choked out by, by worries. And there will be some who receive the word, the gospel, with joy. And um, he who has ears to hear, let him hear. Jesus is saying that um, if you understand this, if you have the spiritual insight capacity, which is God-given to understand this, then respond to it. Um, and if you don't, you will only keep being hardened. And so here it has the same, same sort of message. It's, again, Jesus saying this. And so um, he's calling them to, to hear. He's calling them to respond. And if they don't, they will continue to be hardened. Also, I mentioned that this is usually used in, um, in association with parables. This might hint then for us that what is about to unfold is symbolic in nature, that, that the symbolism being used, Jesus is, is, um, is making clear that only those with spiritual sight will, be, will have insight into uh, the, the symbolic message that is going to be proclaimed. Uh, last thing here is this is this phrase, to the one who conquers. And we see this over and over in, in every letter. It's a promise to those who conquer, those who overcome. They will be granted to, uh, to eat of the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. Obviously, uh, as, as we've mentioned, that's alluding to um, Genesis 2 and 3. There's also a couple places in Ezekiel where uh, that is, is referenced. Um, before the fall, Adam and Eve enjoyed direct fellowship with God. And in the new creation, they will again enjoy direct fellowship with God. And so this is what he's promising here, is this direct fellowship with God. It's only those who overcome, however, who will partake in this reward. Believers must obey the exhortation to persevere and remain faithful if they wish to be heirs of the divine promise. Um, Conquering, overcoming, um, in some ways, but but really this this life and the, this world and the temptation to compromise, the temptation to um, to backslide, the temptation to not be faithful. Uh, in in the Book of Revelation, it's connected a lot of times, and we'll see in, in one of the addresses uh, being faithful unto death. They were suffering martyrdom, uh, and they they would. Be martyred, seemed to have been defeated, but ironically, um, they were actually overcame by being faithful to death, and that is just as Jesus did, crucified. So the conquering kind of uh, take a different meaning for each section, in a sense, as to what. They yeah, yeah, um, and and again, there. This is going to be like there. It's going to show one it's not that this is the only problem they have but this is the big problem they have and but there is a whole bunch of things they're conquering and it's um, to be conquerors to to be faithful until the end and a couple of them there's just a few people and it's not only the outside world and the territory that they're in they have to overcome the people in the church too mm -hmm. trying to persuade them different. yeah yeah so at the end of each message, there's a promise to, to the one who overcomes. They're phrased differently. They, it will promise uh, something a little different. 
Um, but I think that they're all really versions of the same promise, which we find stated generally in chapter 21, to the one who conquers, um, or the one who conquers will inherit these things. In the context of Revelation 21, what these things is referring to is enjoyment of God's covenantal promises, um, his presence among his people, and so essentially just promising them eternal life and fellowship with God for eternity. Um, and it will nuance it a, a, in a different way, but um, as it climaxes each, each message that shows us that the central, central point, the, um, the, the climax of these addresses is this exhortation and promise to the, the one who will conquer is that they will be rewarded with pr- the presence of God in all of eternity. Um, mentioned briefly, and uh, we, we talked about the form that the letters take, there's going to be a pattern that they follow, and you probably picked up on it, and, and uh, that's why I gave you the handout there. Hopefully it's a handy-dandy little chart for you to reference quickly. Um, it's going to have se- uh, seven, or eight, seven or eight pieces to it. It's going to start with the recipient to the angel in the church, of the church in, then the sender, the words of, it will describe Jesus in some way. Then there will be um, a, a statement of approval, usually introduced by, I know your works, your love, your patient endurance. Um, and then it will be followed with a rebuke, but I have this against you. Or sometimes it'll just say, I know your, um, your works, and it'll, there'll, be, there'll be evil works. Then there'll be a call to repentance. Then a, a statement of judgment that will follow if they fail to repent. And then these ones can flip um, in terms of order, but they're always at the end. There's a call to hear. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. And then there's a promise for the conqueror, the one who conquers. Um, you all read through it. We don't have to go through, um, through each and every one, but you can see how, how they follow this pattern. And I mentioned the significance then of when it doesn't follow the pattern. And so if you look at... Uh, Smyrna, it's the, the third column over, but it um, has the heading Smyrna. They don't have a rebuke, they don't have a call to repent, and they don't have a statement of pending judgment. In fact, they'd also add something, it adds a call to continued perseverance. Smyrna's a very good church, they're in very good shape. Um, and this, the, the fact that it doesn't mention those things shows us that they're, uh, they're, they're good. Um, then you have, you have that again with Philadelphia, then with uh, Laodicea, they don't even get an approval. They're that bad. Uh, they, have, they have that much wrong that uh, Jesus didn't even say anything good to them. Um, and, uh, he didn't say, he said a lot of good things to them, but he didn't say anything good about what they were, they were doing, um, emphasizing their, their awful state, really. Um, so yeah, that's, uh, that'll be the, the general order it follows, which is it's interesting, it's, it's effective as a, as a device for grabbing your attention, the repetition, um, and it, I think, is significant, again, when there's a, a bit of a break and deviation in that pattern. If I were to just summarize in, in a few words the, the situation of each church, I would put it like this. So, Ephesus, they're strong in theological truth, but weak in love. Smyrna is faithful in the midst of suffering. They're a good church. Uh, Pergamum, they're holding firm but beginning to compromise. 
Theatira is full of good works, but tolerant of false teaching. Sardis is at the point of spiritual death, though a righteous remnant, a righteous few remain in the city, in the church. Philadelphia is faithful in obedience despite persecution. And then Laodicea is lukewarm and in need of severe discipline. There's several themes. Uh, uh, there's, the, there's a chart which you all have a handout of. Uh, there's a bunch of themes throughout here that I, I think are, are noteworthy. We mentioned a few. Um, the, the power, authority, sovereignty, glory of Jesus all emphasized in his, in his names, in the way that he speaks, uh, in the fact that he is the one judging and blessing them. Jesus then as judge, judgment according to, to their works, they're going to be judged on the basis of, of their works, um, something that is, is emphasized in other places in Scripture, but, but Jesus mentions it several times, and, and you see that through um, the, the rep- repetition of the phrase, I know your works. It says that I think in five out of the seven, uh, five out of the seven addresses, and he either knows their works are good and they're going to be rewarded, or he knows their works are bad and they're going to be in trouble if they don't, if they don't repent. Um, because of that, they, there's a need for continual repentance. If they fail to repent, they're going to face judgment. There's then a call to persevere and conquer. There's an emphasis on not compromising, a call to stand against false teaching. We also see the patience of Jesus throughout with his call for them to, to repent. He does give them um, grace and mercy in all of it. And then, then lastly, there's, uh, connected to a couple of those other ones, there's blessings for obedience and curses for disobedience. And this is the way that the, the covenant was set up in, uh, in the Torah, the Pentateuch. Um, Leviticus 26 lists the blessings for obeying the, uh, uh, for keeping the, the covenant. And then it also lists the curses for disobedience. Same thing in Deuteronomy 28 through 30. And so it picks up on that in, in having these blessings and, and curses. Um, it's, it's really interesting if you, I, just for, for time's sake, I won't, won't re, read through all of them, but if you, if you just take the, the sheet and you take the, um, going down, if you just read then the row for the sender, for the words of, and you just read all of the different descriptions of Jesus, um, then you read the row for the approval statements. You read all the different things that they are commended for. Then you can read all the different things that they're rebuked for. And if you just put all those things together, again, as the message to the churches and see the identity of Jesus, the things that the church is commended for, that we should strive for, the things that the church is rebuked for, that we need to avoid, um, you, you see, and then the promises for the conquerors. And so it's, it's, I, I thought it was really uh, helpful to read through it like that and, and look at um, the, the message in, in totality in terms of the different parts of the approval, review, what have you. Um, all right, any questions or anything before we move on a bit? All right. Um, went through one letter and then kind of overviewed these other ones. If we were to look at now all of chapters 2 and 3, what do you think the message is for us? What message do these chapters have for us? As I've mentioned, these, are, are not, these situations are not just isolated. The, you know, they only faced that back then, but they're, 
all very relevant for us today. They're all things that, that we might face. And so, um, especially in light of the, the words in 1-3, blessed are those who keep the words of this book, we need to think carefully about uh, what this, this section is communicating. So, um, you can have a, have a little bit, think about how would you summarize these two chapters? What would you say is, uh, is the main point or the shared truth, to use the, the language I've been using uh, in these Bible study methods? What is the, the, the shared truth, the truth that you should walk away with, that is eternal and timeless um, as a message to us today? doesn't even have to be a polished sentence, just things that you think, this seems to be really important here, this seems to be consistent throughout all of them. Here's how I might try and summarize what the, the main, main point is. It's like Jesus is observing, you know, the world, mm-hmm. and he is, uh, he's bringing reward if, if you're following him, and um, there's uh, consequences that to people who are disobeying him and, and uh, mm-hmm. rebelling him. Yeah. yeah. I see it as kind of like a process that we're supposed to continually evaluate our walk in the Lord and keep on doing what we're doing right and the things we have to evaluate what we're doing wrong and correct them <clears throat> so that we can persevere through the Lord. Frank. One thing I see is that um, Christ is intimately involved with the dealings of the church. Yeah. And mm-hmm. as a church body, we all have a responsibility. That's very important. Um, it's how God has chosen to um, work in, in this world to get the message of the gospel out and we need to take it seriously. Yeah, absolutely. Anything else that really stood out? Yes, yes, persevere. Like, um, where it says that he's going to give us himself the most. Yeah. yeah. Well, his emphasis on his authority, too. Yeah. Uh, that takes out to me every time I read it. Yeah. I know, I have authority, listen, pay attention. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It sticks out to me that he's, he's not impossible to please. That yeah. There are churches that he doesn't really do. Yeah, and it's not like it's not that it was a perfect church and that every single person person in there never sinned, but but just in the general trajectory of their church and and the lives of all the, the people that it was it was solid. He didn't have anything to I mean probably could have had something, but um, but yeah, it's it's important that we can please God. Yeah, those are all, all key ideas. So here's um, my attempts at summarizing the, the couple chapters. As a sovereign judge and king, Jesus tells the seven churches that uh, Jesus tells the seven churches to inherit. Oh, that to inherit eternal life. There we go. I couldn't even read my own sentence. I'll start over. As a sovereign judge and king, Jesus tells the seven churches that to inherit eternal life, believers must conquer through obedience by remaining faithful and suffering persevering in good works, maintaining doctrinal truth, and resisting compromise. 
Now, if I was to state this as uh, as a shared truth, as kind of something that's timeless and eternal, I, I might phrase it a little differently uh, to get the same point across. In order to inherit eternal life, believers must conquer through obedience to Christ by remaining faithful in suffering, persevering in good works, maintaining doctrinal truth, and resisting compromise. Even more succinct. Believers inherit eternal life through obedience to Christ, which leads to conquering. Plain and simple, I think the message of these two chapters. Um, believers inherit eternal life. The, the reward uh, that, that comes through obedience. Obedience means um, remaining faithful, persevering in good works, maintaining the truth, resisting compromise. And so uh, you inherit eternal life through obedience to Christ and his commands, which he has given, and that leads to conquering, that continued obedience, persevering to the end. If you've remained faithful and obedient, you have conquered. Uh, so I think that's, that's the, the thrust, is, is believers inherit eternal life through obedience to Christ, which leads to conquering. Now when we think about what I've uh, mentioned as the fourth step of Bible study, responding, if we know what the passage is communicating, um, we, what, what do we do with it? So what? How are we to respond? And so um, I'd, I'd like to just take a, take a few minutes and, and think through some of these things. Again, each of these addresses is, is relevant for us today. It's timely. It's a message to the seven churches representing the universal church. These messages are for us. So he who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. First, think about how these two chapters portray Jesus Christ. We should be moved to worship by, by the way that these verses talk about our Lord. Jesus is, is sovereign. He is, has authority. He is the King of kings. He's eternal. He rules over all creation. He has authority to judge. He's patient, he's kind, he's gracious. He also executes his righteous judgment with equity. He is the fulfillment of the promises of the Old Testament. He is the promised Messiah who laid down his life to purchase salvation and redemption for his bride, the church. All these things that, that we see in this passage, Jesus, the one who, the, the first and the last, who died and came to life. The Son of God, who had eye, has eyes like a flame of fire, whose feet are like burnished bronze. The Holy One, the True One, the One who has the key of David, who opens and no one will shut, who shuts and no one will open. The Amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of God's creation, and there's more. This is, is so, so key, seeing the identity of Christ. And so, let this propel you throughout your life, throughout your week? Would it, would it lead us to worship as, uh, as we live day to day in, in light of who our, our Savior is? All these things are true about him. Would we then respond in worship, in obedience as we follow in his ways? Again, Jesus rules over the church. He walks among the lampstands. He's involved in all of its doing. He observes what it does, and he is either pleased or he is not pleased. So then, as a part of the church, if you're in Christ, think about your own life. In what ways are you currently displaying obedience? 
for what things in your life would Christ commend you? Again, you can look through, through the, the list there of all the things that he commends the churches for, and surely there are uh, countless other things he could commend for. And so, so what areas of your life are, are to be commended? As, as Frank, I think, touched on, which, which was great, um, with the, the fact that, that these are the addresses to the churches, the, the corporate body, the body of Christ made up of individuals, but it is a corporate entity. And so um, the Christian life in the New Testament and in Revelation, it's not primarily an individual one. It's marked by its corporate nature. Believers together make up the body of Christ. So now let's think about our church and what ways is our own church displaying obedience? What would Christ commend us for? If, if we replaced one of these churches with Harvest Community Church, what would he say to us? Then on the flip side, also what might he, you know, I don't know, maybe we're, we're going to be, be Smyrna or Philadelphia. He doesn't have anything to rebuke, but maybe not. Um, we are an imperfect church, and so what things would, would Christ point out and say, um, but this I have against you, and, and call us to change and call us to repent of? What things in your own life do you need to change? Uh, here, here are some examples from, from these passages. Laodicea, they're condemned for being lukewarm. Oh, that they would be hot or cold, one or the other. They're just lukewarm in the middle. Are you, so are you in your faith completely devoted to Christ in all areas of your life? Or have you, have you become comfortable as a Christian, remain stagnant, backsliding, lukewarm? Is it that way for us as a church? These are questions that we need to, to ask. The church in Ephesus, they have all the right doctrine, yet they have lost their first love. Do you believe all the right things, yet fail to show love? You have a love for theology or doctrine, and yet you fail to be a light for others? Again, I, I've mentioned several times how relevant these are, and, and every time I, I read the, those first verses, I'm struck. Uh, because I love studying the Bible. I love theology and uh, biblical studies. I get to go to school and study the Bible. My assignments are you know, reading scripture and reading about scripture and translating Greek and Hebrew and all these things. And, uh, and yet I can still walk away and, and be puffed up in my knowledge or go home after a long day and disrespect my brothers or my parents or neglect prayer or things. And, and so uh, this is a, a message that is, is very much relevant for me, um, in, in, to, be, to be honest and transparent with you guys. And so, um, so all these things we need to, to, to look at in our lives and, and see um, what would we be commended for, what would Christ tell us to, to change. Yeah, I had a question about the approval for the church in Sardis when it says on there it says there are still a few who have not soiled their garments and mm -hmm. who are worthy of Christ. What does that mean? Because I mean we've all fallen short of the glory of God, so um, I guess I'm a little confused by that one as we as you know you've asked us to look across and like mm -hmm. yeah. what what stands out to us of maybe what we're doing or what we could do. Um, so that one kind of stumped me a little bit. Could you maybe yeah, help me let me uh meaning a little bit better? Let's see. 
Um, this one, this approval was a bit different than the others because it doesn't follow in like the same format where right away it says, you know, I know this about you guys. It starts out with, um, with some rebuke and with condemnation and then um, things are, seem to be in bad shape. And then he says, but I know that there are a few who have not soiled their garments. Um, I don't think that it's talking necessarily about you know, each sin is, is some blemish, but just in general, in terms of the righteous versus unrighteous throughout scripture, uh, and, and you'll even see on, on the sheet that I, I passed out with the allusions, it's, um, it's uh, Revelation 3, 4. Um, in First Kings, is, is, we see this example, um, the prophet Elijah is, 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 I'm the only righteous one left. They've, all, they've killed all the other prophets. There's, there's no one who loves you. There's no one who follows you. And, and the Lord tells him, no, I've, I've, uh, I've kept, there are 7,000 um, who have not bowed their knee to, uh, to, to Baal, to, to the idols. So there's this idea of this, um, this righteous remnant, um, this, this um, subset of people who, uh, who are still faithful. Uh, and that's picked up a couple times in, in the New Testament in, in, um, in, in Jude. In, in Acts, Paul is discouraged feeling like he is uh, in the city, there's, he's not bearing fruit, he's being persecuted, and the Lord uh, comforts him and says, I still have many people in this city, um, so keep preaching the gospel. And so um, I, th- I think it's, it's, not, yeah, it's not like it's, it's, uh, it's someone who's sinned more than others, but it's in, in general of righteous versus unrighteous, um, believer versus unbeliever. Um, those who have been faithful and those who have been unfaithful. Throughout Revelation, we'll continue to see um, the, the image of um, clothed in white garments. That is actually one of the promises uh, in Sardis. Yeah, um, The promise for the conquerors to, in Sardis is they will be clothed in white. Um, and we see that a few other points in the book, especially at, let's see, yeah, I think with Sardis too, I mean, you've got it's an interesting church because, like you said, it pointed out the, the bad part first. So you have this mm-hmm. general issue going on in the church where these people are resting on their reputation. So it's kind of like, yeah, we just show up. We're part of this church that was really cool at one point, um, but but you're not really doing it. I mean, you're just relying on your reputation as the church. Um, and but yet you have some folks there that taking this seriously day to day mm-hmm. and, and are, you know, seeking to glorify God and what they do and such, and not just, oh yeah, I'm just part of the church, that's all that matters. Yeah. In Revelation 19, the marriage supper of the Lamb, um, the, the, the bride of the Lamb, which we learn is the New Jerusalem, um, is seen and, and it says in verse 8, it was granted her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure, for the fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints. And so kind of that same idea of uh, it's their righteousness. And someone pointed out it's we're clothed with the righteousness of Christ. But, um, but yeah, it's, this, it's uh, I think, an image of, of faithfulness and of um, those who have not compromised, the ones who have soiled garments in, in Sardis, their, their problem, they have the, the reputation of being alive. They're actually dead. Their, their works are, are not complete in the sight of God. Um, they are they're spiritually dead. Their, their garments um, are, are soiled, yet those who are spiritually alive, they have um, p- 
pure garments, unstained garments. So does, does, does that help at all? Yes. Okay. Yeah. Yeah, which is, is crazy. And um, I mean, again, relevant for, for us today with a lot of um, trends in, in Western Christianity and kind of this easy believe, you know, you, when you were five, you said, oh yeah, I believe in Jesus and went to church once and it's good. And so um, I think that kind of is, it, it, it's a, a similar idea to where, you know, it's these people who they claim to, to, to be in Christ, to be following Jesus, but, um, but it's clear they're not, but there are, are some who are, are faithful. So how does that track with the rest of Scripture where you hear, you know, if you believe in your heart and you speak with your mouth, you know, Jesus Christ is Lord, you will be saved. You know, what is the balance between, we don't have a works mentality in our faith, um, although Paul Show me your faith by my works. Um, James. I don't remember the quote perfectly. But, you know, yes, there should be fruit. But where does that line go between we don't earn eternal life through our works. We are granted eternal life through grace. Yeah. Um, So, yeah, it, and it, it can it, it is definitely something we need to, to balance. Um, I think the, the key is, as you said, salvation is a gift purely of grace. Uh, Paul, the first one to say, you are justified by faith and faith alone. Justified, you are counted right in the sight of God by believing in Christ. Um, but Paul would also say, and, and James would also say, balance them out, that um, your faith true faith produces fruit and and if there is no fruit then it's proof that there isn't actual faith and so here in um in these these messages we see that that they are are judged for their works and so there's a sense in which you are justified by faith and yet you are still judged on the basis of your works and those works will either point back to you or you really believed or you didn't and so it's almost like the works are how you tell if you have faith or not right? in, in, in a way you know what I mean mm-hmm. it's just like I think of the parable where the angels are going to go harvest the people and he's like oh don't pick them yet it's really hard look you're not going to be able to tell them out you have, you, you're not going to be able to tell them apart and mm-hmm. like when they grow up and the fruits are maybe not that yeah. then you can really see oh, this Christ, is Christ himself said why you call me Lord Lord and not yeah. Yeah. And so, thinking, like, if you were given a car, you know, it's like, and, and you're saying, you know, you know, yeah, I got this car. I'm just in love with this car because I was given it. It was free. But then you put it in the garage, and then you never take it out. You never do anything to it. It's like, do you really love that car? It's like, if you loved that car, you'd be out driving that car. You'd be, you know, taking it places and, you know, helping you. Get to serve, you'd be doing this with that car. And it's the same thing with Christ. It's like if you if you don't accept, I mean, if you say, yeah, I love Jesus, but then you don't do anything he says, it's like, do you really love Jesus? Mm-hmm. I mean, do you really believe that you know he died for you, that you know this is your response to that? Yeah. So it's, 
and that kind of that similar. Yeah. You could be trying to keep the car from getting scratched. So <laughs> that's what you're selfish. And so we, we this one too, this this one was specific and the, the direction was wake up. Yes. And yes. So I think yeah. it's I think it's uh, um, I think that's really relevant and it it even goes further into say remembrance and and obedience are part of the equation. Like that's mm. something that's not, um, not a negotiable. It's, yeah. it's a, it's part of the equation. And yeah. so I, I feel like that was pretty strategic in the words of like, oh. yeah, yeah, exactly. And, um, yeah. And again, relevant for, for us. And because it's not the, I mean, that, that example I gave of, you know, oh, these people are just a young age or you go to whatever and you, you grew up in a Christian home and you just assume that you're saved and you know, that you can be saved young and you, whatever, but just the, the assumption that, oh no, I, you know, I, I did that, I'm, I done did that, I'm saved, like I, you know, I, I did that when I was five, I made that decision, I walked down the aisle, and without continuing to, to follow, follow Christ daily, to pick up your cross and follow him as, as Jesus, Jesus calls, and so, um, so yeah, the, the messages to the, the churches are certainly relevant for that, um, that very thing, wake up, um, if if you if you think you are in Christ and yet you uh, are not showing it, wake up. And uh, again, the 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 purpose of the, the that call to hear, he who has an ear, let him hear. It's either they're either going to hear that and oh my gosh, like that's me. I need to repent. I need to change. Or oh no, I'm fine. I'm just going to keep going. And they're continuing to get hardened. And so it will uh, will have one of those effects on on people. The word of the words of, of Jesus. Are powerful and they have effects, and, and it will it won't just do nothing. It will it will harden the heart that is is set against God, and it will soften the heart that is um, is open to God. Yeah, it's weird. It's like because I think of like sometimes death and sleep are like and life and being awake are related. And it's almost like I get this image of this person's like they're laying down, they're not moving. <laughs> And they're like moving closer and closer to a state of death, you know, it's just like you are looking like really dead. And then he's like, like, I don't know. I think I like someone going to sleep outside in the cold or something. It's like, that's a bad place to sleep. Don't sleep out there. Because if you maybe you need to get up and and take some sort of action because things are serious. Yeah. No, I just uh, I went to a church that was so legalistic that like you know they thought if you if you sin and you walked out your door before you asked for forgiveness and got hit by a truck, you weren't going to hell. <laughs> yeah. It's just it, we have to be careful to balance that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. There is there is that grace, and I think we also go through. I don't know about you guys, but just me, I go through cycles of sometimes I do feel less passionate, mm-hmm. and I. Uh, you know, and I do get called back to, you know, my first love um, and stuff like that. I think we go through some of that as we, as we grow in Christ and things like that. And we just can't, we can't take something that goes too far towards a, you have to earn this because then it becomes a thing of anxiety. And I don't think God wants to put that on us. Yeah. You know? Yeah. And so it's definitely walking the, um, Walking, walking that line, I know that, and, and we see this in all areas, for when you have one extreme, you then have another extreme. And so you have that, no, you are saved by your works. You sinned, and then you, you, know, you got in a car accident dead. Sorry, you're, 
going to hell, then this thing where, no, 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 you, you just, you repeat these words after me and you're good for the rest of your life. You don't need to do anything. Um, we need to hold these, the, this balance that the scriptures, uh, the scriptures clearly, clearly show us. And so, um, yeah, that's, and we'll find that in, in scripture is that it's not always, you know, this clear, cl- clear cut black and white, that there's a lot of tensions that we have to grapple with and, and walk with. And, and that's one of them of, of, justified by my works, or no, sorry, no, erase that. You're not justified by your works, you're justified by faith, um, and yet your works uh, re- re- reveal the underlying faith and justification, so, yeah. Anything else? Sometimes people, myself, put things on myself that didn't even come from God So Jesus, my name is easy, my burden. I need to look at him yeah. Anything else that uh, that stood out or that you found encouraging or cool that you were studying? This uh, this next week will be amazing as we get really into this. Yes, yeah. Uh, I and I can get you. Did you need these two? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, as we get into really the meat of the book, um, we get this amazing vision of the throne room of God and of Jesus Christ, and there will be a lot to talk about, a lot of allusions to the Old Testament again, so be ready for that. Um, the, the, the homework is, is just to read the passage, and then I've, I've again kind of laid out some questions, laid out some different things to be on the lookout for just for you to think through as you are studying the passage and just reading it, letting, letting God's Spirit begin to, to stir that in your heart or put those words in you. And, um, I hope that some of these questions will help you notice some things you might not have noticed and they will also give you some practical ways of just things to be on the lookout for as you are studying the Scripture. Um, is there anything else? Any other questions or comments or any again anything that's really stood out that was really encouraging for you this week? Well, I always like the way of seeing one this one going in one of those cycles where I feel like I'm a little bit more it's a good reminder. Yes. Yeah. 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 I like the idea of putting your the church and putting yourself in as one of these churches because I feel like I'm the one sometimes I had kind of an interesting, I don't know if this is weird, but uh, when I read the scripture, I've never, I've never been, I've never studied the scripture like in school, Mm -hmm. like you have, and um, I find myself going always to what what my application is. so is there a strategy that can help us? I mean, even in the, the, the interesting thing about like the first love, like for me, I immediately went to um, our call to love him first. And, um, and that feeling of when you, um, when you are new and fresh in your faith, how you are, um, that passion and, and more of what you do, that's where I went with the church. And then the mm-hmm. insight that you gave today was, was really awesome. It was different, and I hadn't thought of it in that way. But as somebody who's trying to actually 
take the practice of what you're giving us as study as well mm -hmm. is um, how how do you do that when you're reading it and really make sure that you're um, going to that message versus just like what you take from it? Yeah, yeah, that's where um, where what I've talked about is the third step is um, is important is before you move to okay how am I going to respond and apply this is identifying well, what is it communicating to all people that I could say here's what it means for my mom for this person in my church for whoever and then we each individually apply that um, so I think taking that step of okay trying to even whether you know you write it down every time or you just think through okay what how would I summarize what is what is the the underlying truth that this is is saying um, the an, another thing and uh, why it's so so important that we have things like this is that you're exposed to other people and that you you don't just read the Bible by yourself um, because you are always bringing something to the text you are always um, for, for better or worse bringing something to the text and and maybe because of your own presuppositions your own background your blind to, to something the text may be saying and someone else can point that out and the same for them and so um, so studying in community is is great keep returning to the text um, I had uh, one one book that I wrote actually one of these scholars who I quoted Grant Osborne another book that he wrote um, talks about the this the the way that we study scripture it's this spiral of going to the text and then coming away and continuing to go and as we as we continue to go back, we are refining and um, and being refined more and more in terms of seeing the text for what it is rather than bringing our own maybe um, meaning onto the text. And so to continue going to the going to the text and looking for what what the text is trying to say rather than what I want it to say, um, and and the Spirit continuing to uh, conform you to the image of Christ and and give you insight. Um, I, I think the main thing, though, that, that I said at first will just be to identify those, um, those shared truths, those, those, um, those messages that are, your, that are able to be communicated to all people of all times and all places um, because, that's, because the scripture has a message for everyone and then moving from there uh, on. Because if you skip that step, it becomes hard to, to then, it, it makes it a little harder to backtrack and because when you say, oh, well, I'm reading the scripture and applying it to my life, and then someone else is reading it and applying it differently, maybe, well, are they, is it meaning two different things? And, and maybe you're interpreting it two different ways, or, or maybe not. Maybe you are working off of the same assumption, but to identify that assumption of what, what the message is, I think is helpful. Um, and then also, um, something just... I look at this internet page, and something that I go to sometimes, I can talk across the passion saying, I mean, I'll just go to the internet and I'll just type in, the, you know, um, what did this mean in this verse or whatever. I mean, I don't know how to like phrase it. But you'll get answers and commentaries. Now, granted, not all of them are going to be good, necessarily, yeah. but, but sometimes there will be months where you've got to think about it. Oh, I yeah. About it um, another, uh, I mean, study Bibles are, are helpful resources. Yeah. Um, a really good study Bible is the ESV study Bible. Um, it has... Yeah, yeah, there it's a, it's a bit thick, but it's really helpful. Not only does it have um, comments on each verse and introductions to the book that 
go through the themes and things to, and just other information. It has really helpful like essays at the back that cover a really wide range of topics from theology to ethics to, um, to individual books of the Bible and, and all these different things. Um, study Bibles can be helpful just for a quick, as you're reading, reference to, to see something there. Uh, you can also access it online. I think the ESV.org um, or something has, you can read it online. Um, so there's always resources there. But, but yeah, identifying the, the shared truth and, and also reading with people, continuing to return to the text, uh, relying on the, the spirit as you uh, seek to interpret. Um, but, but yeah, I think, that, I think that you're on the right track and I can tell that you're really, you're really trying and if it's new to you, that's, that's great. So I'm encouraged by that, yeah. Well, anything else? All right. Well, I will see you all next week. Looking forward to it. Thanks for coming.